Week in Art is brought to you in association with Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art anytime. Hello, it's The Week in Art. I'm Ben Luke. This week, as the effects of the coronavirus pandemic and the lockdown hit museums, we're seeing unprecedented layoffs on both sides of the Atlantic. We ask, are museums doing all they can to save their staff? We've already discussed the future of museums after COVID-19 on the Week in Art, but only now is it becoming clear the scale of the financial burden of the pandemic and the effects on the people who work at the museums. We'll look at the latest developments in the UK and the US, where hundreds of museum workers are losing their jobs. We'll also talk to Emily Butler from the Whitechapel Gallery, which has just reopened for this episode's Work of the Week. Before we begin, a reminder that you can read the art newspaper anywhere, anytime with our iPhone and iPad app. Visit the App Store, search for the art newspaper, and then you can install the free app. If you're a subscriber, all the app content is available as part of your subscription. Now to museum layoffs. Hannah McGiven is the museum's editor at the art newspaper and she joins me now to discuss the situation at US and UK museums. Hannah, before we talk about uh, layoffs and job losses, can we talk about the financial peril that museums find themselves in? You've had conversations with lots of museum directors recently. Can you give us a sort of idea of the scope of uh, the financial trouble that they're in? So I think it's clear that for any museum that earns a significant portion of its income, so self-generates that income from visitors buying tickets, um, from spending money in the cafe or buying things in the gift shop, all of that income has been wiped out by the enforced closures, which have obviously dragged on for several months um, during the lockdown period. So that has been an enormous loss. And we know that many museums don't have huge financial reserves um, to kind of plug that gap. And in the meantime, they've still got high fixed costs. They've got to run their buildings. They've got to protect their collections. And staff is a, is a big outlay as well. Right. And, and just so that, that we can give the listeners a sort of general idea, I mean, it's it, obviously museums are all individual institutions. They have particular idiosyncrasies, etc. But it's fair to say that the US and the UK, which we are predominantly focusing on today, mm-hmm. do have a particular reliance on money coming in from those sources, right, in a way that some European countries don't. Yes. I mean, the tradition in European countries is for heavily subsidised arts organisations and that has provided um, a cushion during this pandemic whereas in the UK we know that over the past decade there's been a retreat of public funding of the arts so um, the government is still subsidising the big national museums but the proportion um, that that grant in aid makes up of the overall budget has been falling in real terms when you adjust for inflation um, and it it does vary across the different museums in that category. Um, and, then, and then in the US, the situation is even more extreme because obviously there is no tradition of public funding for museums there. So they are heavily reliant on self-generated income, but also on private philanthropy, which has which has been affected in its own way and from endowment income as well. Right. And we'll come to those in, in, a, in a moment. So we're going to start by talking about the US. 
The US, as you say, is in an, an extremely perilous situation precisely because in Europe, there is a lot more public funding, even in the UK. Give us a couple of um, examples of the way that museums have been affected in the US. For instance, the Met is obviously always seen as a kind of standard bearer, the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. Um, how has that been affected, for instance? Yeah, um, the Met came out very quickly, um, I think it was March or April, with their projections of the shortfall for this fiscal year, which which already ended at the end of June and, and the next one. Um, and they were saying $100 million shortfall. And that's um, compared to their annual operating budget of $320 million. Um, they're obviously one of the biggest museums, if not the biggest museum. There's 2,200 staff members um, were on their books before the pandemic. And and that um, cost, the payroll cost, was estimated at over 65% of the annual budget. So we spoke to Daniel Weiss on the podcast in April. And, that, and actually, just after we'd had that conversation, then some job losses were announced. Has the Metropolitan Museum said how many jobs are going yes so in late april they announced that 81 staff members in their visitor services and retail departments would be laid off um and that was with with the caveat that more could well follow um that i mean separately they were also cutting executive pay um they were freezing new hires and they were redirecting money that would have gone into programming and acquisitions into operating costs to shore up that that deficit. Um, so 81, but with, with more expected to follow. Now, on the West Coast, the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art, is actually there's been a huge amount in the press about SFMOMA, their problems relating to Black Lives Matter and decolonisation over, over recent weeks. Um, but they too have been hugely affected by this. What, what have SFMOMA said? Yes, um, it's, it's a much higher proportion of staff who've been affected at SFMOMA. So before the lockdown, they had around 500 employees. Um, so it's a much smaller organisation than the Met, but still a large museum. Um, in March, they said 135 on-call workers, so that's freelancers and contractors, um, would be laid off with 188 furloughs. So they're, they're kept on staff, but they're not paid salaries after a certain point. So the definition of furlough is different in the US from the UK. Right. Um, so that's when you add those two numbers together, that's 60% of staff affected in March. Um, they did take a paycheck protection loan from the federal government, which enabled them to pay um, remaining staff until the 30th of June in full. And they actually cancelled uh, a planned furlough of um, nearly 150 employees because of that loan. And then in June, they said 55 staff members would be laid off or reduced hours from the end of June. So when you when you add that June figure with the with the March figure, we're talking 40 percent of staff laid off. I mean, those figures are when you hear, you know, 40 percent, those figures are really shocking, aren't they? I mean, you, you do get a sense that this is an, un, you know, it's a word that's used very much at the moment, but it is genuinely unprecedented, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I mean, earlier in the lockdown period, 
um, when we were preparing a report kind of projecting the impact of the pandemic on museums. Um, we did ask museum leaders whether they felt there was a precedent in the 2008 recession and and many of them said no. Um, I mean, that obviously had the biggest impact in the US, um, but it didn't come with these enforced closures when there was no opportunity to earn money. Obviously, there was an economic downturn, and so people are maybe less willing to spend money on going to museums and, and days out. But, um, but a full closure is for this length of time is unprecedented. Yeah. Now, one of the things that's happened recently is that lots of museums have been sending out messages, making statements about communities, about the communities that they reach out to in terms of their visitors and their, the, the people that go onto their websites and, and that are part of the kind of audience for what they do in terms of the, the Black Lives Matter protests and decolonizing the museum and having a more responsible attitude towards diversity. But it's really interesting, I think, in the light of what's going on in terms of the layoffs, is that it's clear from lots of the reporting that that people from diverse backgrounds are disproportionately affected by the layoffs and therefore there's a dilemma for museums because it appears that the those all those sort of very inclusive statements might seem rather patronizing given that they are actually laying off large numbers of people from diverse backgrounds do you, do you perceive that the museums are identifying this as a problem I think um, museums have been very quiet on the whole about the numbers of layoffs. It's obviously a very sensitive subject that needs internal discussion before they're willing to talk to press. Um, but few have kind of faced up to the fact that there was a need to distribute the layoffs equitably across the organisation. I only saw one case um where a museum kind of made a point of saying that they they took into account the racial diversity of the layoffs, and that was the Brooklyn Museum, um, which laid off 29 employees at the end of June. And, and they said that their decision-making process had been um, conducted with a commitment to equity, so distributing cuts across departments. And they said that the percentage of BIPOC workers in the organisation actually increased after the cuts. But yeah, I mean, we know we know the cuts are happening in visitor services and retail departments. And those are the positions that were already more precarious before this pandemic. And um, larger numbers of diverse employees were concentrated in those departments and were not necessarily in senior leadership positions, which are more secure. Of course, and obviously in that sense, it's a deeply problematic situation, isn't it? Because you have a, a reasonably undiverse leadership making decisions about a, a workforce that is much more diverse. And of course, that plays into this whole idea that this is why institutions are having this reckoning about their uh, about decolonizing and uh, and about the representation within the museums i I think there would always be a tension between small numbers of leadership, people in senior leadership positions that are receiving high executive salaries, making decisions that will affect larger groups of people who are at the kind of bottom rung of the organization and who feel disempowered um, and I think. There's been a trend in recent years, certainly in American museums, 
towards union organising and and drawing attention to these um, wealth inequalities within the organisations that are outwardly very progressive. So it's not that museums are unique in having this disparity between leadership and more junior precarious roles, but they have come under scrutiny because they're outwardly making progressive statements, as you say, about being inclusive to members of the community without necessarily applying that that ethos to their own organisations. Now, one of the things that we hear a lot about in in terms of American museums predominantly is is endowments. And of course, when you see the scale of the endowments, the Met's massive endowment, the endowment that's something like the the Philadelphia Museum, which which grew um, by 10 million between 2018 and 2019, when you see those kind of large numbers... The instinct is to say, okay, we're in a, if we are in an unprecedented crisis, can you not make unprecedented steps with in terms of accessing those endowments? What do museums say about not using the endowments? Because that's the, the, the sort of consistent line, right? Yes, the Met did make a big point when they did their kind of economic projections for the impact of the pandemic. They said that they would not... Um, increase their regular draw on their endowment, which represented around half of the $320 million um, annual operating budget. Um, So they they weren't planning to increase that proportion um, despite the impact of the pandemic. Instead, they were looking at at, um, restructuring the budget in other ways. Um, But their argument is that um, if you increase that proportion because of this emergency you're taking away from every um, future operating budget in future years so you're eroding the sustainability of the organization in the long term. We're now going to hear from our colleague Margaret Carrigan, who's our senior editor in New York. She's been speaking to two people who were employed at the new museum in the city and helped form its union. But at the end of June, they were among the staff at the new museum who lost their jobs in a second round of layoffs. You'll hear more details about the numbers involved in Margaret's interview. She spoke to Dana Copel, the new museum union's unit chair, and Frankie Altamura, one of the union's stewards, about the growing movement for museum workers' rights across the US and whether institutions can care for their workers. Margaret began by asking about the background to the formation of the new museum union and connecting to the local so-called 2110, which includes workers from other cultural organisations. She also asked about whether they'd met with any resistance from the new museum. you hear Dana first, and then Frankie. Yeah, I mean, in January of 2018, the new museum hosted these, like, workshops on sexual harassment in the art world. It was sort of like the height of the Me Too era, and, like, the museum was clearly capitalizing off of that. And these were public workshops, but staff were encouraged to attend, and one of them uh, was basically a lean-in workshop. It was about how to, like negotiate for a higher salary as a woman in the workplace and how to find mentorship and was organized by the deputy director um, who's technically the head of my department when I was at the museum and basically everyone in our department had had like horrible experiences being shut down whenever we tried to 
negotiate higher salaries. And so we were like, well, this is interesting. And that started, that started like smaller conversations about what wasn't working at the museum, like how, how we were being exploited, what we wanted to change, how we might go about doing that. And those conversations started with a handful of people and gradually grew to encompass a lot of staff, initially mostly from the office, but eventually also including art handlers and um, more front-facing people. And at a certain point, the idea of unionizing had come up a number of times, and most of us didn't really have experience doing that. So we were like, we should just talk to somebody who knows what the deal is. So I reached out to a friend who put me in touch with Athena, one of the stewards at MoMA, also Local 2110. And we, a bunch of us, ended up meeting with Athena and Maida, who's the president of the local, and a few other people from MoMA who've been involved with the union there. And yeah, immediately after that meeting, we were like, yeah, this is what we have to do. I think it was really jarring to see this like salary scales at MoMA and how much higher they were than our own salaries which were like extremely low that was a huge issue even by sort of contemporary art museum standards our salaries were super low and the difference between our salaries and executive salaries was just is just so vast yeah and maybe just to paint a, a little bit of a background picture of what it was like for us to work there as staff um you know we would often go into the elevator, have no idea who else was working with us. Um, there was a, an extreme sort of siloing of departments. So we, you know, unless you were coming into direct contact with, you know, as a curator, for example, the editor, like you were um, basically friendless. <laughs> um, so I, you know, I like to be um, the cheese ball here and really say that friendship uh, really was at the foundation and core of our organizing. Um, when Dana says that we were having these meetings, they really started off as um, lunch lunches together because we had no idea who we were. And, you know, we were all sort of interested in the arts, but also, um, yeah, we're also interested in coming together to speak about how we were working and maybe how we could work better better together. Um, then from there, you know, we had a got really gung-ho person who sort of dropped the term unionizing, and it was pretty quick um, turnaround for us to, to get on board with that. And um, what I, we experienced, I think, with MoMA's local was that unions help other unions, and it was a, a, an incredible opportunity to see how the union president, Maida Rosenstein, um, you know, generously gave her time every week to helping us um, unionize, you know, and this for us, at least Dana and I, and most of the organizing committee, bargaining committee, and now um, delegates and unit chair really took this as a second job um, in a lot of ways. So we really committed to that, um, to this idea very early on. There was an enormous amount of resistance from the very beginning. Um, when we filed our petition to unionize, which is what you do with the National Labor Relations Board when you want to call for a vote, um, we communicated that to Lisa Phillips, the director of the museum, and also to the rest of management, just sort of like explaining our rationale behind unionizing and how we saw it being sort of congruent with the museum's mission and the way it was founded by Marsha Tucker in the 70s is a sort of like a radical space where people could deal with questions of like what an institution should do and how it could ethically run. And we were met with a few days of radio silence. Um, 
think actually there were a handful of people managers and such who thought our email was spam um because you know i don't know workers couldn't do this but then immediately the museum hired this um anti-union consulting firm that's based in kentucky they like flew somebody one of the consultants in from chicago um and started having like really intense hours long captive audience meetings with directors um and also with supervisors and you can't see but i'm doing air quotes around supervisors because they miscategorized like around 10 people as supervisors um and that's like a very classic union busting tactic to try to keep more people out of the union and make it weaker and so i was one of the people that they called a supervisor even though i had no supervisory responsibility and no power at the museum which is why i wanted to unionize i mean that was really revealing because then we had like a bunch of people who had been involved in the unionization campaign so far who then got to sit in on these meetings and hear the bullshit that like this extremely highly paid consultant was telling people i think that's really interesting and i and i'd like to maybe use that as a launch pad to kind of look at what kind of material gains you were able to realize in your negotiations with the museum leadership prior to the layoffs because as you're kind of are, have already identified you know the art world is rather notorious for its low salaries and benefits um and it ultimately perpetuates a system of precarity that keeps those disadvantaged by you know existing structures down and from making inroads and from kind of, you know, these kinds of promotions. Um, so I, I guess I'm, I'm curious, once you guys had a contract, what, what were things that you were proud of that you were able to advocate for, for workers? And, and obviously, if you could speak to how points of contention remained with leadership and how you, how you were able to navigate those up until the layoffs, that would be really interesting, I think. There, there was never any real doubt that unionizing wouldn't be worth it. Um, maybe not for us, you know, Dana, me, and a select group of abused um, colleagues who have sort of buried that trauma, but for our future colleagues. You know, that's what really motivated us um, to go forward with this. Um, the whole process was definitely an act of unlearning than relearning, at least for me. I know personally I had to consider, reconsider what care, you know, care for, care of, care about uh, might mean for my chosen vocation as a curator. Uh, we wanted an industry that was more equitable, accessible, and inclusive, um, which would be reflected in the collective bargaining agreement. What I was taught growing up, uh, doing unpaid internships, working an extreme amount of overtime without ever being compensated, I knew I needed to rethink um, these sort of absurd tricks that were sort of indoctrinated with, um, and especially reconsider phrases such as, like, you are so lucky to be working in the art world, or you must be special because you're a curator or editor working at a cool institution or an artist showing at the new museum, or you're trading a sustainable lifestyle, such as, like, livable wages, healthcare, paid time off, so you can pursue uh, your sort of passion. Um, another material gain, let's say, was embedding arts labor within the, the labor movement in general, uh, there was a sort of clash con consciousness and racial critique that we needed to interrogate, um, and we sort of did this through our organizing efforts. We saw unionizing as a mean to a larger goal, um, which in a more radical sense would be an abolishment of institutions designed to suppress its workers. Um, 
we we definitely wanted to do more than just advocate for change. We wanted to ensure that change happened. There was a lot of pressure on us, or we put a lot of pressure on ourselves as the bargaining committee, which was me, Frankie, and four other people, um, Lily Bartle, Gabe Gordon, John Huron, and Liz Mahan, um, and then our union reps, um, all of whom are really amazing. But I think we put a lot of pressure on ourselves also because like, we knew that that there were other institutions and other art workers looking to us. And we knew that in a way, like this contract had more writing on it than just like what we, what we won for everyone in our shop, though, obviously that was of enormous importance. Um, but I think as best we could, we wanted to set the bar high for all museum workers and all art workers. Um, and so some of the like concrete gains, um, that we won in our contract or, I mean, salary is a huge one. We got, people in visitor services in the store who hadn't had a raise in over three years um, and were being paid like just over minimum wage, fifteen fifty an hour. We got them up to 18 an hour and I believe they'll be at 22 an hour by the end of the contract, which is a five-year contract. And we also got like the lowest full-time starting salary is um, I believe 46000 a year, which is obviously not as high as we wanted, but everything in the contract was an enormous fight with the museum. And so I'm I'm really proud of that. I think like the fact that no one's getting hired at 35, 40, 42, 43 a year anymore is really significant. And like I think also in general things like things like the salary scale that we put in place and also like severance which didn't seem like a real concern when we were negotiating it because like we're like when do layoffs happen? Turns out they happen in a pandemic that's going to happen like <laughs> 6 months later. Um but I think one of the important things about that is like it doesn't put the burden on individuals to sort of advocate for themselves in like a situation that's like actively hostile to their needs. All of this stuff is in the contract. It's like there are stipulations about how much severance people get paid based on their tenure, um, about their like recall rights if the position opens up within a year. You know, there's everything about salaries in a contract and it doesn't mean that like if you're starting at grade one, you can only get paid 46000 a year. It just means you can't get paid less than that. I was just going to point to um, the Labor Management Committee, which was another thing that we fought for, um, wherein we would have the ability to sort of sit um, at another table with um, management you know, whatever representatives were sent by um, leadership at the new museum to be able to talk about our uh, everyday working conditions. And it's especially, you know, more relevant now um, in in that they had, you know, boarded up their lobbies, um, which to us sort of signaled a direct um, sort of anti-protester stance. Um, so for us, having in the contract, the ability for a labor management committee to meet really means that we can address um, the sort of white supremacy that's propagated within the museum's walls directly. Yeah, and then I guess one other thing I want to add um, that maybe gets mentioned a little less, but is like a really important part of the contract is um, the just cause clause. Um, that means that you can't get fired unless there's a reason. And previously at the museum and in most workplaces in the U.S., they can fire you for whatever they want. And, like, I think this was something that was coming up 
a few weeks or months ago, um, I have no concept of time anymore, but with like the um, Supreme Court decision about like queer and trans people's rights in the workplace. Um, and a number of people pointed out like, yeah, like you can't, you can't get fired for being queer, for being trans anymore, and that's great, but you can just get fired for something else. You can get fired for not being like a quote unquote culture fit. Um, and just cause is unbelievably important because it prevents that from happening and gives people like an enormous amount of job security that like most workplaces really try to undermine. Yeah, that's a huge issue in the US um, versus somewhere like, you know, the UK where there are a lot more worker protections already in place under just general employment law. So that's really great that you were able to advocate for that within the union. Um, But, you know, as you guys already mentioned, when do people get laid off? Well, apparently in a global pandemic. So just to recap for our listeners, you know, in the beginning of April, the new museum director, Lisa Phillips, abruptly announced that the museum was going to lay off or furlough 48 staff members. And 31 of those were members of the union. And then the museum also notified unionized part-time art handlers that their scheduled installation work was canceled until further notice. So that effectively furloughed them as well. Um, So that brought the total number of staff members impacted to 95. And only five union members remained on the staff at the end of that round. Then on the morning of June 30th, um, just as the first round of paycheck protection program loans were coming to an end, um, management again notified the new museum union of further layoffs, uh, laying off 18 people who had been previously furloughed, 11 of which were union members. Um, So the museum has now effectively laid off every member of the union steward committee and laid off or furloughed every member of your bargaining committee. And you guys, I would presume, don't think that's too much of a coincidence given the kind of resistance you were already met with so I guess on a broader ideological level, I kind of want to ask, why is that significant? Why does that really deserve attention right now? Because as you said, you know, the, you were really proud of what the union was able to accomplish, uh, even despite some roadblocks, maybe getting it set up. What does this kind of reflect about museum, the museum industry and, and what it says about their, their care for workers? Uh, the short version is they have none. Um, the longer version is, I think the new museum, to me at least, clearly used this pandemic as an excuse to break up the union as much as they could. So there's seven people that are currently on staff that are part of the union right now. They gave us the wrong numbers at first. They've been withholding most information from the union, even though we have a right to it. I think there's like a sense that museums are somehow like more ethical spaces because they like have progressive language around them and show like the work of artists who are engaged with sort of like progressive or leftist causes. Um, And it's bullshit. They're, They're just like every other corporation. And that's increasingly how museums are run. And I think it's clear that like any any institution, any company that's going to use a pandemic as a means of just getting rid of people that they don't want around, which also means that these people won't have healthcare, won't have an income in the middle of a pandemic. Um, it's, I mean, it's just deeply cynical and capitalistic. And I, don't, I think like 
yeah, I think anything, anything that like museums say about their progressive values is like absolute pretense at this point. Certainly, it is with the new museum. I'm I'm just thinking about. I actually recently just listened to an eviction defense workshop hosted by AOC, Jamal Bowman, Housing Justice Justice for All, um, where a housing justice activist named uh, Winsome Pendergast grass um said you always hear landlords say location 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 and so for us as organizers all she could say was organize 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 um so while the arts industry doesn't have something as catchy as um this is a slogan i think normalizing the conversation about organizing will will definitely help shape the industry's future um at present i currently see it as being uh a a totally obliterated industry. Um, I just actually read today also in Artnet that Hong Kong museums have opened and closed three times now because of the the crisis. So that's what you know the U.S. is in for. The sooner that arts workers really see themselves as workers, the sooner you know we can band together and collectively discuss like more radical changes that we need to build better art worlds. Um, I'm also thinking about. Um, these in, call out Instagram accounts, um, as well as, you know, which are really detailing sort of brave stories and testimonials of, um, you know, wrongdoings within the museum, as well as, you know, open letters and solidarity rec- resignations um, that are really le- leading to sort of major institutional shifts and reverberations. Um, so, yeah, I just want to pinpoint those because. It's very cool to see how we can support these arts workers who are doing this without the loving, you know, support and backing of a union. Um, so, yeah, kind of power and solidarity to them. And people are really starting to see the need to get together. I'm afraid I sound really cynical right now. And I, I mean, I think there are a lot of reasons to be cynical. I think like the way the new museum has treated us as the union and as low-paid workers in general um, has been really deeply dispiriting um, and deeply frustrating. And I think that's the case at a lot of other museums too. But I think I'm also just like so heartened by how much organizing has been happening among art workers um, at other museums and other institutions and outside of that, um, as Frankie was talking about. And it's yeah, I think it's just really amazing to see art workers building power and hopefully making like real sustainable changes. Well, thank you so much for sharing your experience with this and for, you know, sharing your offer to help others do the same and organize and empower themselves. Um, I wish you the best of luck in going forward from here. We did approach the new museum for comment on the recent round of layoffs and their relationship with the union. They've issued us with this statement. The decision to proceed with layoffs during this unprecedented time was extraordinarily difficult for the museum, a decision we hope not to have to make. We worked hard to preserve as many positions as possible and made a concerted effort to honour our core commitment to equality and diversity. People of colour now constitute 51% of the new museum staff. Though the museum has been cast by the union as being hostile to it, we were proud to have jointly reached an agreement and CBA in October 2019, when many organisations have yet to do so, and we continue to respect those terms of the CBA. However, disagreement is not disparagement, and further progress will be made through cooperation and exchange.
We'll be back after this. The Week in Art is brought to you in association with Christie's. As collectors and art lovers increasingly look to browse and purchase online, Christie's continues to grow its online-only auction calendar. This July, their offering includes a newly expanded Hybrid Classic Week, a series of both live and online sales spanning art from antiquity to the 20th century, from an Egyptian coffin mask to a fine engraving of Dürer's iconic Melancholia I. Remastered, a curated online sale of old master paintings paired with contemporary art, continues the conversation into the 21st century. The refresh schedule complements Christie's private sales. Bid and buy art at any time and from anywhere. Find out more on christies.com. Welcome back. I'm still here with Hannah McGiven, our museum's editor at the art newspaper. And now we're going to turn our attention to the UK and Europe, and particularly the UK. Literally today, we have heard that 400 jobs at the South Bank Centre, which is a multiple arts venue. It's a, it has it's the Royal Festival Hall. It's it's the Queen Elizabeth Hall. So there are performing arts venues, but also it has the Hayward Gallery. Um, Hannah, 400 jobs at the South Bank Centre. That's a huge number, isn't it? So that, that gives you, again, the scope of, of the way that the British arts organisations are being affected by this. Yes, I think that example um, is really striking because it's a huge proportion of the staff. So they are saying up to 400 employees at risk of redundancy out of a total of 600. So we're talking two thirds um, and we're looking at the different venues across the organisation as well. Um, and they, the South Bank Centre had already been very vocal earlier um, in the year in May, warning of the deficit. Um, so they said that there would be a £5 million deficit for the current financial year as a best case scenario. So in a way, the biggest news in terms of visual arts venues relates to the Tate because uh, there's been reporting in the art newspaper and elsewhere um, over the past couple of weeks about job losses there. Hannah, can you tell us broadly what is being said about job losses at the Tate? Yes. So at the Tate, um, across the four locations, two in London, Liverpool and St Ives, um, there are estimates that more than 200 positions, primarily in retail, are at risk of redundancy. But those positions are not part of the Tate as a charitable organisation. They're part of Tate Enterprises, which is a limited company that runs the retail division. It also runs catering, corporate events um, and other commercial activities. But it is um, owned by the Tate. It's a subsidiary that is owned by the Tate. Right. And it, this is crucial in terms of understanding what you mentioned earlier in terms of the way that UK museums have been encouraged increasingly to find sources of funding through their own means in other words to up their catering offer to expand their shops to find all sorts of other commercial avenues to raise funds because of this real term decline in um, granting aid which basically is, is essentially these were much more publicly funded institutions and they are now generating much more of their own income so what percentage of the Tate's income is now granting aid Hannah? So granting aid makes up 26.5 percent of Tate Gallery's income um, that was according to the 2018 to 19 financial year so that means that 
the Tate has been especially successful among the national museums that receive government funding in, in raising its own money. So other national museums um, take a larger proportion of their budget from the government grant. So for the V&A, for example, you're looking at closer to 40%. It's over 40% for the National Gallery and it's, it's closer to 60% for National Museums Liverpool. So um, the government is, is really a minority funder of Tate. Right. And that's why you are seeing sort of, as you say, 200, around 200, which is the estimate of the PCS union, who I'll be speaking to a member of the PCS team in a moment. So it's it's really palpable that the people that are affected by this are the people that actually are the members of staff that the public see when they go to the gallery aren't they they're they're people that work in the shops and in and in the restaurants and cafes so that so they're very visible members of staff that are actually losing their jobs yes it's um it seems to be that the front of house staff are most vulnerable um to these cuts so they are in many ways the face the public face of the organization when when visitors come in Right. And so we've heard about this £1.5 billion rescue package that's been announced by the British government. Has that not helped with this? So the rescue package um, was broadly welcomed by not only national museums, but um, across the art sector in the UK. And um, there's been kind of huge focus on campaigning for that rescue package over many months um, compared to European countries that have announced their emergency funds much earlier in the lockdown. Um, But of that package, we do not yet know how much will go to support national museums. So there was an announcement that 100 million of the 1.5 billion will be targeted support for 15 national museums British Library, British Film Institute and English Heritage. But we don't yet know the breakdown um, of that. So our our reporter, um, Martin Bailey, did some calculations and, and his estimate was that that support may only compensate for half of the losses that um, are being sustained from the closure during lockdown and the anticipation of slow recovery of fewer visitors coming in after reopening at the end of July. You mentioned uh, European museums there. Are you hearing of job losses at those museums? Like, for instance, Germany is being held up as this kind of um, shining beacon of an example about how it's dealt with the virus. How are its museums dealing with it? it? It does seem that German museums have been insulated from job losses if they are publicly funded. Um, so I spoke with the head of the German Museums Association who who said that there wasn't a risk of um, layoffs because staff are protected by their contracts, their public employees. So the museums, if they're looking to make savings, won't be able to make them through redundancies, through layoffs, but um, through cutting the programme. I'm so curious hearing that because obviously we we know that there's been lots of announcements in British museums about future programmes over the past couple of weeks, haven't they? You you know, we know that Artemisia Gentileschi is opening at the National Gallery, you know, six months after it was due to in October. So there's lots of celebration about um, programmes, lots of forward planning, lots of exciting news being made. And, and when you say that, I, it makes me wonder, you know, if German museums 
are necessarily cutting programmes in order to save jobs. Is that not something that British museums can do? Um, there will also be cuts to programmes in UK museums. So the the impact is not only going to be felt in redundancies. Um, museum leaders here have come out and said that they anticipate fewer blockbuster exhibitions going forward. So fewer of those big loan shows that generate or are seen to generate so much money for the institutions. And they'll probably um, go on for longer and um, it will be fewer organisations that can afford to put them on. So I think museums are also looking to, at savings across programming, across other areas of their budget, and not only looking at redundancies. Did the UK government indicate that the money that they were providing to museums as part of this rescue package should be could be used to uh, pay staff wages, or was it always intended to be used for other means? The, the government um, has made its position clear that the, the money is designed to protect organisations um, and not individuals. Um, so the Culture Secretary, Oliver Dowden, did tell the BBC, um, of course we will see further redundancies. Not every job is going to be protected. Um, so it's designed to, to be a financial lifeline to institutions but um, I don't know what conditions there are for institutions and how they they use that money. Okay well we're going to go and hear now from Stephen Warwick who is a representative of the uh, PCS union and he spoke to me about job losses at the Tate and elsewhere. Stephen, um, can you tell us what the PCS union is and who you represent? Yeah, so um, PCS uh, is the Public and Commercial Services Union. Um, we represent members across the civil and public service, um, predominantly in uh, central government. Um, and we also represent uh, the funded arm's length bodies or, or NDPBs uh, of government, which includes the museums and galleries um, that are funded by DCMS. So which museums are included in those groups? Broadly, all of the museums or, or virtually all of the museums which receive grant in aid funding. So uh, that will be uh, places like the Tate Gallery, the British Museum, uh, the um, Wallace Collection, the Natural History Museum, the, the Victorian Albert Museum. So most of the largest national institutions, uh, the Imperial War Museum, for example. And at the heart of this discussion is the fact that it's a very particular kind of employee at the museums that is particularly vulnerable can you give us a flavor of who those people are yeah so i mean pcs represents uh, anyone in those institutions that wants to join but but at the moment we're seeing that um it's actually uh, the kind of retail um and catering elements of those organizations that are most at risk and um about a decade ago uh, when the Conservative government came in and, and sort of started insisting that additional money was generated, self-generated by museums and galleries rather than them being funded solely through uh, the government's grant in aid payments. Lots of the museums and galleries uh, set up their own trading companies, their own for-profit trading companies, uh, which are wholly, wholly owned by the organisations, but that trade for profit. And, and it's those people uh, in those trading companies at the moment who we, who, who we are seeing at most at risk. And um, PCS's position is that, you know, uh, they, they should belong to the institution. They're, they're wholly owned. The companies are wholly owned by the organisations and the organisations themselves uh, must take responsibility for, for those employees at work. So are you essentially saying that 
the some of these museums are treating the your members that are um let's say working for Tate Enterprises or for the National Gallery Company as is as if they were arm's length employees employed by a separate company yeah so their position is that these are you know they've set up a for-profit company and therefore uh you know unless they're generating profit then then the staff are not achieving their function our position is uh that you know the shops and and restaurants and places inside the, the galleries and museums are fundamental to people's experience of culture and it you know it, taking away their keepsake is absolutely part of the experience of visiting a gallery or museum and and is part of what will inspire young people particularly uh to to taking an interest in the, those art institutions so um while the galleries and museums seem to be saying well they're enterprise contracts they're retail staff and therefore they must generate profit pcs's view is they they perform that function for the gallery, but but their impact is much more important than you know somebody that's selling clothes on the high street. I think that's a really important point, isn't it? Because I was asking just a few people before this telephone call. Do do you perceive any difference between somebody who is working in the Tate shop and somebody who is in the galleries as a as a visitor uh, assistant? And it's really clear to me that there is no. You, you would not perceive a distinction between any of these people, right? So so. It, and, and and one group of people is employed by the gallery and the other and the other group of people isn't in in theory so this is a really crucial question because they are all front of house and they are all representing the organization right yeah of course and and you know they all have to wear their tape branded clothes and they all have to meet the tape behaviors and standards and in fact you know the tape gallery in good times uh talk about one tape and the idea that they are they are you know they want one one set of treatment for staff and one kind of approach but uh, we've seen that's you know very quickly um, fade away over the last month or so, where they they you know the, the times are not so good and they're not generating as much money. But um, certainly for for anybody visiting the gallery, uh, you would not know who worked directly for the Tate and who who worked as the enterprise contract, except by knowing what functions are outsourced and, and what ones are not. Right. So, can you tell me whether your members, when they join these organisations, have any idea that they might be treated differently? I.e., when they're joining the the organisations, do they think they are becoming a member of Tate staff? I think uh, the answer to that is probably yes. And and I think you know, to be fair to the institutions, they will probably say, "Well, you know, it's all branded as Tate Enterprises, and that's that's what their contract says." But um, you know, in the same way. Uh, as as anybody at work you go to your place of work and these people work at the Tate and they feel that they're part of Tate and they feel that they contribute as I mentioned to the kind of cultural and institutional uh, values of the Tate and so yeah I, I mean if I went round my my Tate Enterprise members and said where do you work the answer would be the Tate they wouldn't say that they worked at Tate, Tate Commerce or Tate Eats or, or, or Tate Enterprise um, and you know that that that's really important for them that they they feel part of that group and part of that that larger collective one of the really interesting aspects about this and i think it's a really important one is about diversity because the people that work in the shops and in the restaurants are probably among the most diverse groups of people in the whole museum and that is a source of pride to the various museums right that they have a diverse workforce and that they want to encourage a diverse workforce and of course they are being disproportionately affected by this issue so have you had discussions with your members about this issue and in fact have you have you brought this up with the museums that you're you're working with yeah um absolutely i mean we um 
you know, part of our comms has gone out to say exactly that. And, and you know, it isn't just the Tate, but, but actually across most of the civil service and, and public owned areas that outsource staff tend to be far more diverse than their sort of, if I can use the word, insourced counterparts or all core counterparts. Um, and um, the arts and culture is, is historically bad at, in terms of their diversity statistics, particularly for um, BME uh, and disabled staff. And, um, you know, some of that is in terms of the, the kind of optics of the gallery when people visit. Some some of that is actually, you know, improved by the fact that there are far more um, non-white, you know, BME colleagues that work at, at, at in, in the outsourced companies, particularly in Tate Eats, but also uh, across Tate Commerce um, and, you know, non-English staff. And the reality is that outsourcing itself you know causes the issue because those the the jobs that those people are doing um are then kind of siloed and it means that it makes it much more difficult for somebody that comes into the Tate working in in Tate retail that's a BAME colleague to move up and kind of take on those roles um in 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 the core museum and and you know improve the representation that we know needs to be improved uh, across across the museums and gallery space um and it is you know it's really important particularly in light of the, the the Black Lives Matter protests and that galleries and museums you know all issued statements to say you know we want to do so much to help and, and we want to improve and then in the next breath they're, they're looking at their most diverse teams and, and you know, carving them up without without really viewing the implications of that and, and what it means for the optics of the sector but also what it means for the progression of people coming up through through those um through those structures into the Tate gallery and into understanding uh, the arts and and you know getting the love of the arts and the gallery space and you know really really striving to achieve into the sector Right. So let's talk about your negotiations that you are having with the museums. Are they ongoing at the moment or have they reached any kind of conclusion? Yeah, I mean, we, we continue to consult. Obviously, um, as it stands, they are making a large number of redundancies. Um, but, you know, it, it's our job as PCS to collectively consult for those areas where we're recognised. Um for all members and and to make whatever the outcome of the process is as good as it can be. And again, you know, in fairness to the Tate, I think genuinely uh, we have made improvements through the process, but the, 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 the outstanding issue simply is that we don't think that they should be making such huge redundancies and that we think, particularly in light of the government investment of a hundred million pounds into the national galleries and, and museums, of which the Tate is going to be a significant beneficiary is the largest visitor attraction, free visitor attraction in the country. Um, you know, need, some of that money needs to be earmarked to, to protect jobs. And um, I think that I had a meeting with, with the director of the Tate and the director of, of Tate Commerce on Monday, and their position was that unfortunately they didn't think that they could invest that money to, to or, or, or that they would invest that money um, for that function. And, and that kind of, that puts us in a, in a position of, of, of far more entrenched dispute, really, that, that even when money is available, they're still not using it to, to save those jobs. Um, so the consultations are ongoing in terms of, you know, with the overarching objective that the, the, the museums have of, of making those redundancies. But PCS's position fundamentally now is that the redundancies are unnecessary. And so we've moved into a dispute uh, with, with, with the gallery. Okay, so it, now that you you as you say you've moved into a dispute, what what are the next steps? Is strike action and an, uh, a possibility? Yeah, I mean we had a uh, we we launched over the weekend last weekend um, a consultative ballot. So we we took the views of our members and on a 
on a very close to 100% turnout, we got 93% in favour of, of moving to a statutory ballot. So uh, we will do that and we will, we will issue notice to the employer um, as soon as possible. Uh, obviously, with the deadlines that are required for that, members are uh, very upset and, and um, you know, part of that meeting on Monday with, with Maria and with uh, Carmel, the, the, the chief executive of, of Take Commerce, was to outline to them that the result of the consultation, uh, the consultative ballot, and to tell them that, you know, members had this feeling and to give them the opportunity uh, to rethink. Obviously, um, nobody wants to take strike action unnecessarily. The union um, doesn't want to encourage members to take strike action unnecessarily. But with such a resounding view of members, we can't do anything but uh, take strike action unless the Tate... Uh, fundamentally changes their their position, which at the moment they're saying that they're not prepared to do. Is is there any sense in which you're engaging the Tate and other museums about fundamental problems with this approach to commercial entities within public spaces? Are you, in a way, are you addressing the very culture that has been created in recent years? Um, absolutely. I mean, it has been uh, a PCS culture group um, priority for at least the last five or six years to say that outsourcing is it causes huge problems and um, it was fundamental to our uh, very large dispute at the National Gallery which was um, a few years ago now uh, where they tried to outsource um, the um, visitor experience and the visitor security staff um, and you know we, we took a hundred and, and 10, 111 days of strike action on that very issue because we don't think it's acceptable and clearly uh, we knew at the time, and, and it, it stands to reason, that, that if you take people out of the galleries and make them a commercial asset, then they're going to be treated in a commercial way. And we, we fundamentally disagree that that should be the, the case about uh, the, the publicly owned arts and cultural institutions, which are there for public good, not not to generate millions of pounds of revenue. Um, and we have got a very unique model in the UK. There are very few other nations who whose uh, nationally funded arts institutions are expected to generate as much money as ours are expected to generate. And that's uh, a view, you know, of of or a position that the Conservative government took, which was that arts were less important and so could, you know, should fund themselves um, and not receive as much government funding anymore. Um, but yeah, we oppose all outsourcing, whether that's creation of enterprise contracts or outsourcing to private sector companies that are you know even more removed from the control of the, of, of the galleries and museums and that position is really coming home to roost now particularly with um certain outsourced security companies um who are you know not providing sick pay for example to their staff during a during a pandemic and our you know we're saying that that, that actually causes potential risk for visitors because uh, if if people are forced to choose between self-isolating when they feel a bit rough, uh, but not being able to pay their rent or ploughing through and going into work and taking a chance, uh, you know, we don't think members should be asked to make that decision. Uh, and so um, and, and with, you know, thousands of people coming through the galleries every day, there's a potential there that anyone going in sick could have a huge public health impact. Um, and again, you know, the museums and galleries people in their direct control they have obviously provided um full sick pay and and they continue to do that and we are obviously pleased that they're doing that but there are hundreds of staff across the galleries and museums um publicly funded galleries and museums who don't have um sick pay arrangements and and that that's a huge problem for us in terms of public health and in terms of the health of our members that are at work of course Okay, well, Stephen, thanks very much for talking to us today. Thanks very much for your time.
Now, we did ask the Tate if somebody could come onto the podcast to uh, give their side of this story, um, but they have instead issued us with a statement, and here's what it says. Tate is almost unique in choosing to run its catering and retail activities through a commercial subsidiary, Tate Enterprises Limited. Most museums outsource these activities to other companies. When the galleries reopen, new regulations and social distancing guidelines will impact the ability to operate retail and catering outlets in the same way as before, and there will be an inevitable drop in visitors in the coming months. We in Tate Enterprises Limited are therefore having to make the difficult decisions that many businesses in the hospitality and retail sectors now face, and have begun a collective consultation to restructure the business. Tate Gallery has already allocated £5 million from its reserves to support the business throughout lockdown in this financial year, which has enabled us to top up salaries to 100% and retain staff during this difficult period. In order to reduce losses once the galleries reopen and to resize in line with expected demand in the longer term, we have entered a period of collective consultation with our staff. We are working hard to retain as many of these staff as possible and have modelled as optimistically as we can with a view to ensuring the long-term future of the business. This consultation is across all areas of Tate Enterprises Limited and affects all levels of staff. Our aim is to be as supportive to our colleagues as possible in the circumstances. As the period of collective consultation is ongoing, we cannot give any specifics as we don't yet know the outcomes. The government funding recently announced is welcome news for the museum sector, but we do not expect any of these funds to be allocated to Tate Enterprises Limited, particularly in the light of support already received. And that's from Hamish Anderson and Carmel Allen, who are the directors of Tate Enterprises Limited. So, Hannah, just to conclude, it seems to me that we've, again, we've talked about the unprecedented nature of all this, but it also seems to me that if we are, as many people predict, going to be with coronavirus for a long time then museums as we know them are going to have to do some pretty fundamental thinking about how they continue to exist and and how they continue to fund themselves and also support their staff it's a moment of reckoning isn't it I think it is I think there's enormous uncertainty about the future but also a a will to change Um, so I mean potentially there's room for optimism here Um, But obviously, that hasn't stopped lots of people who work in the sector and feel passionately about the sector losing those positions and potentially um, having to move into into other areas to to maintain their livelihoods. So I think that's um, a real tragedy, potentially. And um, we haven't spoken much in this conversation about freelancers, but obviously um, many freelancers, creative practitioners have fallen through the cracks of the government support schemes that, that have existed to protect jobs and support employers. Um, so that's something that organisations are going to have to answer to as well to, to save the vibrancy of the arts. It is a rather grim subject to be talking about, but thank you, Hannah, for explaining it to us. Thank you. And you can read lots more about museum layoffs at theartnewspaper.com. In a moment, we'll hear about Emily Butler's work of the week. But first, here are a few of the top stories on the Art Newspaper's website this week. In Bristol in the UK, the artist Mark Quinn installed a statue of a Black Lives Matter protester, Jen Reid, on the plinth which until last month supported the statue of the slave trader Edward Colston. 
Some have hailed Quinn's gesture, but it's also met with much opposition. In a comment on theartnewspaper.com, the artist Thomas Price writes, For a white artist to suddenly capitalise on the experiences of black pain by putting themselves forward to replace the statues of white slave owners seems like a clear example of a saviour complex and cannot be the precedent that's set for genuine allyship. Quinn's statue was removed by the Bristol authorities within 24 hours of him installing it on the plinth. The French cabinet approved a draft law allowing the restitution of 26 looted artefacts to Benin and a historic sword to Senegal, in the first step towards fulfilling the French president Emmanuel Macron's 2017 pledge to return African heritage taken during the colonial era. As Catherine Hickley writes, the law which compels the authorities to return the artefacts within one year is necessary to bypass a principle of French law under which treasures in public museum collections are deemed inalienable. And finally, the Montreal Museum of Fine Arts Board of Directors terminated the contract of its Director-General and Chief Curator Natalie Bondil, based on what it said were disturbing reports from staff about a toxic work environment created by Bondil. There are reports that Bondil, who has led the museum since 2007, was being sidelined to make way for her presumptive successor Mary Daly Desmarais, a curator who's related to major patrons of the museum. You can read these stories and much more at theartnewspaper.com or on the app. Now for our work of the week. Emily Butler is a curator at the Whitechapel Gallery in London, which just this week reopened for the first time since lockdown in March. She's chosen to talk about a video by the British-born artist Rhea Store, Junkanoo Talk, which you can see in full on the Whitechapel Gallery's YouTube channel. There's also a link to the video if you go to theartnewspaper.com, click on the podcast link on the homepage and look for this episode. Okay, Emily, um, before we get into the work itself, the Whitechapel's just reopened. It must be gratifying to know that people are back in the gallery after four months and lockdown. Absolutely, yes. We had a really um, great turnout on our first uh, reopening day. In fact, I think there was a queue outside the front door just before we opened. And visitors were just absolutely delighted to experience uh, work in the flesh again. And certainly for me as a curator, it's it's so nice to think that, you know, we've wakened these exhibitions from their sleep and they're, they're fulfilling their function and kind of inspiring people again. Now, the work that we're going to be talking about was actually something that was first presented by the Whitechapel under lockdown, wasn't it? Because it's part of this Artist Film International programme that you put together that was broadcast by several organisations um, in the period when people were at home. So tell us about it. Absolutely. Um, In normal times, um, Artists Film International is a collaboration of 20 institutions around the world. And we all choose one work from our country or region and we share it amongst ourselves. So it's a really great way of uh, premiering work from Afghanistan all the way to Hong Kong in the UK for the first time. And um, what was really important um, in this programme was experiencing uh, film um, within the gallery space. So you could experience it as a, as a screening or as an installation. But um, COVID really kind of uh, shut all our institutional doors and was really a moment where we, we were propelled to, to show this work online. And it was fantastic to be able to show these 20 works um, with the public across the globe. And I think it also gave a really nice message of collaboration, you know, despite borders being closed and institutions being shut, we were still carrying on sharing work all together. Now tell us about Rhea Stool's work, because the thing that really strikes me is it's, it's, it's a film in a moment when a lot of people needed 
colour in their lives, were being, in a way, restricted by their immediate environment. This is a film that sort of ushers you into this world of pure colour. Absolutely. It's a really sensory work um, and it kind of gradually builds up. Um, so there's a there's a, an amazing soundtrack which is based on clicks and sounds on the body and sighs um, and interspersed with this, this kind of very rhythmic sounds which are based on the rhythms of the rake and scrape music of the Bahamas. You see flashes of colour, um, you see details of this uh, Junkanoo carnival costume uh, which is a very characteristic costume made with uh, fringe paper. And then you gradually uh, you work out a, a body that's dancing and that's um, dancing this traditional Junkanoo carnival dance. Um, so in a way, you're kind of um, really propelled almost into the physical experience of the dance. Um, so I think it's, it's a work that's very visceral. And um, it's a work that I think touches on really important issues uh, around language and around communicating other people's experiences uh, without the use of words, you know, in this very kind of sensory way. And what led Rhea to this particular dance and, this, and, and the Bahamas? So Rhea is a British Bahamian artist um, and she is really interested in the representation of diasporic uh, cultures in her work and how to represent and speak of other cultures. And she was fascinated by the John Canoe, which is the, 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 the national uh, carnival of the Bahamas. And it's actually a bit, un, you know, it's a bit different from what we imagine a carnival to be, like the Notting Hill Carnival. It's more like a New Year street pa- parade. And it's a parade that um, actually developed in times of slavery. Um, and it used to take place on Boxing Day uh, on the 26th of De- December, which was the only day that the slaves had off. And it was actually a kind of moment, I suppose, of catharsis in a way, and a moment of celebration and a moment of, of, of protest. And she's really interested in this idea of a carnival being a space of protest and celebration at the same time. Um, but she's also concerned with this idea of how do you uh, speak on behalf of another culture? You know, can you um, claim another culture if you are of mixed heritage? Um, and she's done this by kind of offering an alternative kind of visual language um, to speak about other cultures. But it's interesting in how, how there's sort of certain specific elements like the text, which punctuates the word. There's this the word again uh, that appears repeatedly through the, there's There's this sort of rhythm of that plus her, is it, is it the artist's breath? Is it Rhea's breath that just appears every, every, I don't know, half a minute or so? And you have these sort of pauses in the film and then these rhythmic moments. So there's a, it's, it's, a, it's a very, um, there, there are moments of high activity and then moments of pause throughout the piece. Yes, absolutely. It's kind of almost syncopated, a bit like cut-up poetry, cut-up visual poetry. And yes, the the sound is uh, designed and recorded by Rhea herself, so she makes her own soundtracks. Um, And yeah, there is actual text and a little bit of speech as well interspersed throughout the work. So the work actually starts with a quote by James Baldwin, which talks about the impossibility of actually speaking of other people's experiences. And perhaps you can only really talk about these experiences through your own experiences and interpretations. And so that's kind of a a bit of a kind of guiding thread to to set the theme of the work. And then, yes, there's the word again, which which emphasises this idea of syncopation and repetition. Um, 
And halfway through the work, um, there's also a quote uh, recording of the Minister of Culture of the Bahamas saying, you know, you've got a body, you you can all talk, um, which emphasizes this idea I was talking about, about maybe inhabiting the role of the performer, the dancer in the work. Um, you can, you know, really f- feel what they're doing. You can really understand the talk of the, the Junkanoo Carnival, which links to the title of the work, which is called Junkanoo Talk. And Rhea's quite a young artist, isn't she? I mean, she's, you know, I think I, I, I would imagine she's about 29 years old. And so is this kind of one of her first sort of institutional opportunities to show uh, her work? Yes. Um, I mean, I actually discovered Rhea's work in the Get Up Stand Up exhibition at Somerset House. But uh, certainly through this programme, Artist Film International, this is the first time that Rhea is going to be exhibited in 19 other countries across the globe. So, yeah, it's both an institutional moment for her, but also, uh, you know, fantastic opportunity of being premiered abroad as well and of course it i mean it it has a topicality it was made in 2017 this film but of course it has a renewed topicality in relation to the black lives matter um protest absolutely i think uh, in this moment uh, institutions are being scrutinized for you know uh to respond to to this moment and you know whilst we selected ria uh last year i really think the the work has a renewed sense of urgency um, in terms of thinking about this issue of representing other cultures. Um, also, I think it's a very sensitive work. Um, I think it, it treads very carefully with this question of identity politics and this idea of, you know, celebrating this extraordinary cultural tradition, which is Junkanoo, without reducing it to just being a, a mere spectacle. As I was saying earlier, I think what's really important in Rhea's work and what she's interested is this idea of carnival as a space of celebration and a space of protest. Okay, well, Emily, thank you so much for talking to us about it. Great, thank you. Whitechapel is open from Tuesday to Sunday and bookings for the Radical Figures exhibition and for the free displays must be made in advance. And that's it for this week. Do sign up for the Art Newspaper's free daily newsletter for all the latest stories. Go to theartnewspaper.com and the newsletter link is at the top right of the page. Please subscribe to this podcast and give us a rating or review if you've enjoyed it. And you can also find us on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. The producers of The Week in Art are Julia Michalska, Amy Dawson and David Clack, and David's also the editor. Thanks to Hannah, Margaret, Dana and Frankie, Stephen and Emily, and thank you for listening. See you next week. The Week in Art is brought to you in association with Christie's. Visit christie's.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime.